previously on Chillingworth. That was the last time anyone ever saw the Chillingworths alive. Most people, if they just committed the most notorious crime in the history of the state of Florida, would lay low. But Joe and Floyd did the complete opposite. They planned to not only maintain the bribery scheme that had been running swimmingly for many months, but also to launch their own Bolita operation and a bookmaking enterprise. And an Australian ace is declared the winner. So things were going great until a gambler from Fort Lauderdale laid down large wagers on several horses and chose the winner in all but one of the races. The book hadn't generated enough cash to pay off the bets, so they were down $40,000 to the man. This man was connected to the largest crime syndicate in the Southeast. So Floyd and Joe knew they couldn't simply not pay the lucky better. Joe's solution was a classic, straightforward plot. He would take out a double indemnity life insurance policy on Hal Gray and then kill his hapless partner. And Joe, Floyd, and Yinzer set the stage for yet another murder. The very second Hal walked into the Chi Chi Club, Floyd began to shower him with insults as he whacked him over the head over and over. Joe urged Floyd to leave Hal alone. Floyd realized that Joe was calling off the operation. Floyd knew it was all over at that point. Joe's queasiness, his abject failure to do to Hal Gray what he'd insisted his friends do to Judge Chillingworth, had now put Floyd in a position where he'd be on trial for attempted murder in about two months. Welcome back to Chillingworth. I was always surprised by the fact that Harold was able to withstand those blows from the blackjack. We went to trial against Floyd Hosapple. It was a trial that all I can say is it was just absolutely ramming it with pure perjury. Obviously a very convincing man, very well spoken. After many hours of deliberation, the jury did acquit him. Chuck Nugent, the county solicitor, prosecuted Floyd in his attempted murder trial. Peggy sat in the courtroom, several months pregnant. Floyd testified that the incident stemmed from the deep, mutual animosity that had developed between him and Hal since he snaked Peggy from the alleged victim. He claimed that Hal had hurled insults at him and his beautiful wife since the day they were married. A sleazy associate of Joe's labor goon pal, Barney Barnett, took the stand and blatantly lied to the jury about what had happened that night. He claimed that the incident was essentially just a little scuffle between Floyd and Hal. A little scuffle that somehow resulted in Hal's severe, gaping head wounds. The witness wasn't even in West Palm when it all went down. Chuck Nugent was stupefied at the verdict. Floyd was found not guilty of all charges. 
Peggy sobbed as Floyd escorted her out of the courtroom. Peggy's presence in the courtroom, Hal's pretentious manner on the stand, Floyd's effortless lies. Collectively, all of this was enough to create reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors. Floyd and Joe turned their attention to creating more innovative criminal schemes. Their lucrative bribery deal had ended abruptly about 18 months earlier, after Joe felt compelled to resign his judgeship when he was suspended by Judge White. And they'd shut down their bookmaking operation a little while later after their mob-connected client picked several winners on one day. Later that year, the Chillingworths' three grown daughters, who had come to terms with the horrible disappearance of their parents, finally petitioned a probate court for a formal declaration that their parents had passed away. The court issued an order granting their request, punctuated with the cold, statutory language. The circumstances surrounding the party's disappearance are not consistent with the continuation of life. Not long after Floyd's trial, Hal Gray visited County Solicitor Chuck Nugent in his office. Hal told Nugent that a man he'd never met had called him and said that Joe Peel and Floyd Holzapple just might be plotting his murder. Chuck drove down to Broward County to meet with the Good Samaritan, the guy who had taken the time to warn Hal of his impending doom. The man turned out to be Santo Traficante's associate. This was the better that Joe and Floyd owed 40 grand to. The man told Nugent that months before, Joe had revealed that he and Floyd would be raking in $100,000 after collecting on a double indemnity life insurance policy. So Chuck quickly confirmed that Joe had taken out a policy on Hal's life. When Chuck told Hal about the life insurance policy and that Jim Yenzer had issued it to Joe, Hal recalled the night Yenzer had appeared at his door. He recounted the incident with the sock and the bar of soap and the spider. Nugent found it astonishing that Hal hadn't brought this to his attention long before. Nugent immediately understood the purpose of the blackjack pummeling in the Chi-Chi Club. The twisted logic that led Jim Yenzer to brain Hal Gray with a bar of soap fashioned into a mace. Now, the brazen conspiracy was clear. Shortly thereafter, Chuck Nugent indicted Joe, Floyd, and Yenzer on a murder conspiracy charge. The evidence, although much of it was circumstantial, seemed pretty convincing. The three braced themselves for another trial. Peggy Holzapple, Imogene Peel, and Skeeter Yenzer, the innocent wives of the defendants, watched in horror. The trial got underway. But this time, no one had to lie his ass off to the judge and the jury. Florida case law in some jurisdictions 
provided that if a defendant had been acquitted in a crime that was the underlying offense in a conspiracy case, there could be no conspiracy. Floyd had been acquitted of attempting to kill Hal Gray, so there couldn't be a murder conspiracy case against Floyd, Joe, and Jim Yenzer. The defendant's counsel filed a motion to dismiss the case, supported by this legal precedent. The judge granted his motion. Chuck Nugent began planning to appeal the ruling as Joe, Floyd, and Yenzer celebrated. Joe and Floyd refused to rein in their criminal urges. They must have felt nothing, not even a smart prosecutor like Chuck Nugent, armed with an abundance of convincing evidence, could stand in their way. And that's the way it is in West Palm Beach. Something for everyone, of every age, in every season. A city of variety, a city of opportunity, a city where each day ends with the promise of an even brighter tomorrow. Their next imaginative deal demonstrated how confident they'd become. It was most likely the very first of its kind. They planned to steal vials of radium from the radiology department at Good Samaritan Hospital, the hospital where Hal Gray's life had been saved by a talented doctor after they'd tried to crack his skull open and then drown him in a tub of canal water. Joe had heard that there was a demand for radium in Latin America, either as a black market product for hospitals in the region, or even as a weapon in political conflicts. They lifted several vials of the highly radioactive material and gave them to Barney Barnett's close friend, Red Levy, another Miami-based hoodlum, who was supposed to fence the goods. The team expected to collect somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 grand in today's dollars. The highly lethal material was valuable in part because it could be weaponized. Revolutionaries might use it to assassinate dictators. Joe and Floyd obviously had a notion of how potent the radium was. So they probably should have packed it in a lead box rather than a leather briefcase before they handed it over to Red Levy. The scheme looked like it was going to evolve according to plan until Red Levy dropped dead in the Miami VA hospital not long after he transported the radioactive vials back home to Miami with the briefcase sitting next to him in the passenger seat of his car. Around this time, the owner of a garage in Miami came across all but one of the stolen needles along with sticks of dynamite, a submachine gun with ammo, and a jug of methyl alcohol. The man reported to the Miami police that Red Levy had asked him to store the odd assortment of weaponry. Levy and Floyd were both suspects in the heist, but no one was ever charged. Barney Varnett, a vicious, unrepentant murderer, wasn't happy that Joe and Floyd had brought about the demise of his closest, most dear friend his best pal since they were little boys running around in short pants. He was going to make them pay. 
As of late 1957, the collective efforts of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Department, the West Palm Police Department, and every other law enforcement agency in Florida had not produced any evidence that suggested Joe Peel, Floyd Holzapple, and Bobby Lincoln had killed Judge Curtis Chillingworth and his wife Marjorie. Earlier that year, according to County Solicitor Chuck Nugent, State Attorney Phil O'Connell privately defended Joe Peel when Joe was charged with conspiring to kill his law partner, Hal Gray. Phil calls me one day and said, I have represented Joe's family for years. And he said, I know the mother and father, they're great people, and I think they were. He said, uh, as you may know, I, he, he worked for me for a short period of time and was very satisfactory as an employee. And he said, I know he has some shortcomings, but no matter what, I just don't see him as a killer. He was trying to indirectly help his son. He didn't ask me to not prosecute him or to go easy on him, or, but he just said, I just don't see him as a killer. O'Connell told Nugent that he simply didn't believe Peel was capable of orchestrating Gray's murder. So Phil O'Connell, who along with John Kirk was the man most responsible for seeking the Chillingworth killers, was insistent that Joe simply didn't have it in him to kill anybody. And the renowned special investigator brought on to work on the Chillingworth murders exclusively, by late 57, was spending most of his time looking into other crimes because he'd exhausted just about every possible angle in the case. Among law enforcement officers, Deputy Ralph Clark was one of the few who thought Joe might be capable of murder and might even be responsible for the Chillingworth deaths. Hal Gray, Peel's partner, law partner, in the Chi-Chi Club, Jose Apple, is trying to kill him. That's when I believed then Peel and Jose Apple, and there was a responsible for the children's murder. That was my opinion. When I went to John Kirk with my opinion, I thought, well, I'm doing the right thing. He told me to stay out of it and to do my job that he hired me to do over there. And, and he said I had enough work to do without getting involved in that. They had other people working on that thing, you know. So I let it go at that, at that point. Joel Daves, who followed Chuck Nugent as county solicitor, felt the same way as Ralph. The evidence that came out ultimately in the Chi-Chi assault thing, and maybe that kind of focused attention on Joe Peel, that would, you know, that evidence Chuck put together, Chuck Nugent put together, uh, I mean, particularly when the evidence of the life insurance policy came out, well, that was, that was damning evidence against Joe Peel. Uh, however the case, that case turned out, maybe Joe was capable of something like that. So the people who the public counted on to bring down the killers had failed completely. Law enforcement agents and prosecutors seemed to be no threat to Joe Peel, Floyd Holzapple, and Bobby Lincoln. But someone else was a threat. For the second time, they had incurred the wrath of another figure from the underworld. First, it was a bookmaking customer connected to the Traficante Syndicate they were in debt to. They had made arrangements to pay him back. Now Barney Barnett, a notorious crime boss from Miami, was after them. Barnett believed the radium rods Joe and Floyd stole had killed his close friend and fellow sleazebag, Red Levy. 
Joe and Floyd managed to convince Barnett that Red had died of natural causes. It wasn't easy and it looked really bad for a while, but they were able to persuade Barnett that the intestinal disorder the VA listed as the official cause of Red's death couldn't have been the result of exposure to radiation. No one will ever really know whether Red died because he had carried the radium around for hours in a briefcase. But Barney, at least, ultimately accepted that the material stolen from Good Sam Hospital was not the cause of his death. It turned out that Barney and Floyd actually became closer after the radium episode. Barney recognized that Floyd was a rare breed of cat, an intelligent criminal who could plan an operation and who also wouldn't hesitate to beat the shit out of someone. After the two Chi-Chi Club cases, both of which got a lot of press in West Palm Beach, Floyd thought it might be a good idea to relocate. Acquitted or not, it doesn't sound very good when someone points to you and says, that's the guy who tried to kill an attorney in the Chi-Chi Club. He was associated with a sordid crime. When Barney Barnett offered Floyd a job in Miami Beach, he took it. Only a few months after Chuck Nugent prosecuted him for attempted murder, Floyd became the head of security at the posh Deauville Hotel in the northern end of Miami Beach. Floyd brought in Jim Yenzer as his assistant. It would be like two gluttonous foxes in a henhouse full of clumsy, nearsighted chickens. Barnett owned a popular restaurant in Miami Beach called The Patio, which was frequented by politically influential locals as well as nefarious criminal characters. He was also involved in a variety of rackets and at times served the syndicates as an enforcer. Barnett and the late Red Levy had allegedly killed Charles Ferry and his wife, right before Ferry was to testify against the head of the Gambino family. Barney and Fred's crime might have planted the seed in Floyd's mind that led him to come up with a method for killing the Chillingworths a few months later. And Barnett was a labor goon. This meant that he would violently discourage hotel workers from organizing unions on behalf of hotels and other businesses in Miami Beach. That's the real reason he used his influence to get Floyd his unlikely job at the Deauville. He wanted to have someone with Floyd's presence, brains, and willingness to use force on call to help his clients keep unions away from their employees. Floyd and Yenzer proved themselves very useful to Barney. On several occasions, they intimidated earnest hotel workers who hoped to gain fair wages and benefits by joining a union. During this time together, slapping around union men, parading through an elegant hotel, occasionally lifting jewelry from guests, a bond developed between Yenzer and Floyd. They would carouse together after hours in the dodgy bars and clubs in the north end of Miami Beach. One of these nights, Floyd got utterly plastered, and while he was three sheets to the wind, he began to regale Yenzer with sordid tales of his criminal past. 
He even told Yenzer without going into much detail that he and Joe were behind the Chillingworth murders. When Yenzer brought what Floyd said about the Chillingworths up later, Floyd said he was just talking shit. Even though he was now living 60 miles south of Joe, Floyd still saw him frequently. Floyd still saw Joe as the friend who would help him elevate himself. He envisioned coming up with a bigger deal, a deal of a lifetime with Joe. In late 1957, out of the blue, a manila envelope landed on county solicitor Chuck Nugent's desk. Somewhere along the road, I got a, a large, one of these like eight by 10 uh, manila envelopes. And inside it, it was five eight by 10 photographs of five different, very attractive women, completely naked. The pictures were the ones that Joe's friend in the police photo lab had printed for him. They were the photos of Joe's divorce clients. The darkroom manager who'd printed the images had decided to break his promise to Joe for some reason. And the immediate background of each of these girls was a diploma hanging on the wall with the name Joseph Alexander Peel, Jr. So it was clear to Chuck Nugent that the photos were taken in Joe Peel's law office because although Joe had obviously composed the shots to feature his client mistresses, he had not paid enough attention to what appeared in the background of the frame. He hadn't noticed that his Stetson Law School diploma with the name Joseph Alexander Peel was visible. Chuck Nugent identified the women in the pictures, tracked them down, and discovered the story behind each one of them. He always would tell them all the same thing, that they were such beautiful women that uh, he would love to have a completely nude picture of them uh, so that he could always remember them and time went on. And apparently all five of these women, nice women too, they really were, high caliber women, well-educated women. Uh, I said, but I will do my level best to keep them out of the press and out of the news. and. And uh, so I did everything I could to keep it confidential. Joe had promised all five women that he would leave Imogene and marry them after their divorces were final. He disappointed all five, obviously. Even after having prosecuted Joe in the Hal Gray conspiracy case, Nugent was amazed at what Joe had done. Joe now faced the possibility of disbarment again. This time, he couldn't avoid this fate simply by killing a judge. So to avoid the public humiliation of disbarment proceedings, Joe agreed to resign from the bar and to never try to get reinstated. Joe issued a press release stating that he was grateful for the opportunity to serve the people of West Palm Beach as their municipal judge. But it was time now to pursue other goals chase other dreams. He would accept a former client's offer to become a partner in his construction firm, 
In the end, killing Judge Chillingworth had given Joe about two more years as a lawyer and only a few more months as a magistrate. After the Chi-Chi Club trials, it probably became more clear than ever to Bobby Lincoln that his entanglement with Joe and Floyd had become dangerous. Since the three men murdered the Chillingworths, Joe and Floyd hadn't exactly been keeping a low profile. And their novice co-conspirator, Jim Yenzer, had even tried to drag Bobby into the reckless Hal Gray deal. At this point, Bobby had to be content returning to his own self-contained empire in Riviera Beach. Joe never joined forces with his former client. Instead, he set up his own construction company in Lake Worth, just south of West Palm Beach. Around the same time that Joe had to give up his career as a lawyer, Floyd lost his plum job as chief of security at the Deauville Hotel in Miami Beach. A reporter had revealed to the police that Floyd had an extensive rap sheet dating back to the time he robbed three movie theaters in one evening in Oklahoma. Floyd had taken the job under the alias John Lynch. Floyd and his friend Jim Yenzer could no longer rummage through safety deposit boxes and generally pillage the hotel they were hired to protect. At this stage, even though his reputation had eroded because of the Chi-Chi Club case and his resignation from the Florida bar, Joe still thought he might be able to claw his way to a political office. He believed that the electorate might pick him, a man who routinely lied through his teeth and exploited his unctuous charm to fleece anyone who crossed his path. A man with a pitch black heart. Stranger things had happened. In 1958, Bobby was doing all right on his own. He'd built up his own Belita operations and developed his moonshine trade with a consortium of producers up in Jacksonville. He and his lieutenant, Pee Wee Wiggum, had established themselves as a leading supplier in Palm Beach County. One of Bobby's associates in Jacksonville was a young man named Lou Jean Harvey. He was arrested in a moonshine sting here in Jacksonville and taken to jail. They kept him trying to get him to turn state's evidence against his, the person he was working for. That was Janet Cannaday. Her in-law, Lou Jean Harvey, was a 21-year-old driver for the Jacksonville moonshine outfit that sold to Bobby. Bobby was arrested in the dragnet, along with Lou Jean Harvey and a lot of Jean's relatives. At the time, there was no ATF. Federal laws governing alcohol production and sales were enforced by a branch of the Internal Revenue Service. Because the feds apparently allowed Lou Jean Harvey to escape in their initial raid of the group, and because of the subsequent contact between the agents and Harvey, his colleagues began to believe he was an informant. It appeared that if an insider like Harvey was an informant and testified about the moonshine operations, all 30 of the men arrested would be sent up the river. When Floyd heard what had happened and learned that there was an informant, he went to Bobby with a proposal. Obviously, he didn't want to see his friend Bobby in the Do-Right Hotel. 
He also feared that Bobby might be tempted to sing about the Chillingworth case if he was facing a long prison sentence and needed something to offer the feds as an informant. Floyd told Bobby he'd gone to Jacksonville and researched the files on the Moonshine case. He claimed to have determined that without Harvey as an informant, the feds wouldn't have a case against Bobby and the others who'd been taken in the roundup. The obvious solution to Floyd was to kill Eugene Harvey. Bobby wasn't comfortable with the idea, but Floyd convinced him to present it to the others awaiting trial in Jacksonville. The moonshiners agreed to pay Floyd $1,500 for taking out the informant. Floyd began to plan yet another murder. This time, it was a 21-year-old moonshiner. I don't think he did more than three or four runs. He was just a happy-go-lucky guy. I like to race cars. They, he used to go to the car races. Just a nice man that was raised in a different kind of world. Floyd meticulously crafted a blueprint for the murder of Eugene Harvey. Unlike the Chillingworth job and the botched attempt on Hal Gray, Floyd intended to do Harvey in all by himself. He drove up to Jacksonville for a second time. Bobby had provided him with Harvey's name and telephone number. Aware that Harvey wasn't earning very much as a driver, Floyd expected him to be anxious for any kind of work. And Floyd knew that Harvey loved cars. He said they were driving cars to South America. I mean, I was caught in this guy. Yeah. Floyd found Harvey and introduced himself as John Lynch, a friend of Bobby Lincoln's. Bobby and Harvey knew each other and were on very good terms, so Harvey felt comfortable meeting with him. Floyd didn't expect Harvey to know that the Pan American Highway stopped when it hit the Darien Gap in southern Panama, that there was no way to actually drive cars from the U.S. to South America. And he was right. Harvey didn't know. Or maybe Floyd told him that they'd transport the vehicles by ferry from Panama to Colombia. However it went, Harvey agreed to sign on with Floyd's venture. The next step in Floyd's plot was most likely unprecedented in the history of homicide. Here's what happened. Floyd bought a dog at a pet shop and drove it to the edge of a state forest outside of Jacksonville. He entered the forest with a hound on a leash and then very unceremoniously shot him in the back of the head. Floyd had most likely never even named him. He stuffed the dog into a sack and carried it several hundred yards into the woods. Then he began to dig a hole, or a grave. A grave deeper and wider than one you might dig for a deceased dog. Before Floyd had finished, a ranger came upon him. The ranger surveyed the scene. He asked Floyd what he was doing. The ranger asked Floyd why he was digging a grave in the middle of the woods. Floyd opened the sack and showed the ranger a lifeless dog. He said he wanted to give his pet a proper burial 
The ranger told Floyd to bury it in his backyard. He apologized to the somewhat suspicious ranger, quickly filled the hole, and headed out of the woods. Floyd had bought the dog with the very scenario that transpired in mind. He wanted to have an explanation for digging the hole, which was clearly a grave in the event the law appeared. Floyd was relieved that his ruse had worked, but the unsettling experience with the ranger led him to come up with a new methodology for taking Harvey out. It occurred to Floyd that if he killed Harvey near Jacksonville, the ranger might recall the strange late night encounter with Floyd and consider the possibility that he actually had not been digging a hole for his dog. Floyd contacted Harvey again and told him they would be driving down to Palm Beach County to pick up the stolen cars before heading to Mexico and then down to South America to deliver them. They agreed to meet at Paxson Lounge, not far from the house Harvey shared with his several family members, including his wife Lola and his in-law Janet Kanaday. Harvey felt relatively secure about driving off with Floyd, but he wanted to make sure that if something went awry, his family could track Floyd down or track John Lynch down, as Harvey knew him. So he wrote Floyd's tag number down on a slip of paper and gave it to Lola. He also asked Lola and Janet, both 18, to come along with him to meet Floyd at the Paxson Lounge. We went into the lounge. He came up suddenly and he said, what are these girls doing here? Jean said, oh, I want you to meet my sister-in-law, Janet, and my wife, Lola. And I don't even think he got wife out. And he said, get them out of here. They're not supposed to be here. And we got up and left. And uh, then we wrote, Jeans didn't come out with us. He said goodbye, and we knew he was going with him. I got the fucking man. Yeah. All right, well, one day, I got it. He's mine. Yeah. Floyd drove Harvey down the coast and put him up in a hotel near West Palm Beach. He called Bobby, who thought that by now, Floyd must have finished Harvey off. Bobby was horrified to hear that Floyd now wanted him to help kill Harvey. The thought that he had to be personally involved was almost more than he could take. Bobby had been haunted by the Chillingworth murders for over three years at this point. He had had no intention of ever committing a murder again, but Floyd insisted that Bobby join him, and Bobby would be implicated as an accessory, whatever he chose to do. So he reluctantly agreed to help Floyd kill Harvey. The next night, Bobby met up with Floyd and Lou Jean Harvey, not far from 20 Mile Bend, the bend in State Road 80 west of West Palm Beach, very close to the L40 Canal. When Harvey turned his back on Floyd, Floyd pulled his 380 Beretta on him. Floyd and Bobby bound Harvey as he pleaded with them to let him live until they gagged him. Floyd and Bobby drove Harvey a few miles to the L-40 Canal, where a boat belonging to a friend of Bobby's was tied up along the bank. 
Floyd sat his terrified captive down on the boat as Bobby struggled to crank the outboard engine. After yanking on the rope several times, he told Floyd it didn't want to start. Floyd told Bobby to keep trying. Bobby at this point was overwhelmed with regret about the position he found himself in. He didn't want to kill Harvey. He wanted to kill Floyd. Killing Lou Jean Harvey, this good-natured, naive boy, really, to avoid three years in prison, now seemed like an unforgivable act to Bobby. He was trying to muster the will to shoot his friend and partner. Bobby was utterly tormented as he cranked the outboard motor. Then Floyd shot Harvey in the head with a Beretta 380 automatic. Bobby yelled to Floyd, why'd you shoot him right here? They had just shoved off from the canal bank. I shot him. You shot him. Why'd you shoot him? Why'd you shoot him? Keep breathing, for Christ's sake. 380 on me. Bread. Right here. Bread, top man. Oh, hey. Huh? He wasn't conscious. Well, shouldn't have. Why, they don't know if you shot him top the goddamn head. Bobby was struggling to pull himself together. I can't imagine Bobby killing anybody. You shot him that he goes out there on a goddamn canal bank and pan. Well, he, no, he can, well, he shook him. He shook me upside Because it wasn't a pleasant sight. He got nervous. He got excited. He wanted to hurt. He got scared. He got scared. Hence so, all, that's, that's normal. I was scared. Floyd tried to calm Bobby down. Bobby collected himself and steered the boat south. When they had reached a point where Floyd felt they were far enough from the bank where they launched their boat, Bobby idled the engine. Then he and Floyd attached two concrete blocks to Harvey's corpse with wires. Floyd had asked Bobby to bring three blocks. As they pulled Harvey to the side of the launch and then pushed him overboard, the wire securing one of the two blocks slipped off. Now, only one block was secured to the body instead of the three Floyd had figured it would take to sink Harvey to the bottom of the canal and keep him there. Floyd was pissed at Bobby. He told Bobby that they were now both seriously at risk of getting caught. Even though he'd been cautious up in Jacksonville when he was about to leave town with Harvey, Lola and Janet, Harvey's wife and his in-law, had seen them together in Paxson's lounge. Floyd had never given Harvey his real name. He'd said his name was John Lynch, an alias that he'd used before. But he'd been seen with Harvey. So if Harvey's body was found and identified, the two witnesses would be questioned and could give detectives Floyd's description. Floyd impressed upon Bobby that they could not allow Harvey's body to be found, ever. 
He demanded that Bobby return in the morning to the spot on the canal where they had thrown the man overboard. Dive down into the canal, teeming with gators, and find his body. Bring it to the surface. Tie another two concrete blocks to it, then sink it again. Holy shit. Bobby assured Floyd he'd do it. But he didn't. Well, there is one other thing about West Palm Beach, and it just happens to be the part that I personally like best, and that is the fresh water country. There's good hunting and fishing out here, and unspoiled natural beauty. And to me, there's nothing like the challenge of the largemouth bass. Three days after Floyd shot Harvey in the top of the head, two men were bass fishing out near 20 Mile Bend. As one of the men reeled in his line to check his bait, he caught a glimpse of something floating a short distance away, close to the bank. He motored the boat toward shore and realized he was looking at a body, a handcuffed and gagged body with its eyeballs popping out of their sockets, bobbing up and down on the L-40 canal. Chillingworth was created by Texas Crew Productions and Nighthouse Films. It's produced by John Moss, myself, Jonathan Payne, Rick Sykowski, and Brad Bernstein.